So, welcome back everybody. We're here in this lovely house of Professor Abdallah Schleifer, who unfortunately isn't able to join us on this occasion. Um, and I'm here with Guy Ogilvie, and we're going to be continuing our Cairo conversations. And now we're doing what we've both been really looking forward to doing, which is diving into the Surah Al-Kaf. That's the Surah of the Cave, Surah number 18 of the Quran, which contains four narratives. It's most famous for the narrative concerning Moses and Al-Khidr, uh, the green man, uh, but we're only going to come to that narrative after we've started with Dhul Qarnayn, the two-horned one, identified with Alexander the Great, Iskandar. Uh, so we're going to start with this narrative on Dhul Qarnayn, then go to uh, Moses and Khidr, and then we go further back into the surah and look at the narrative of the two owners of the gardens, and then we're going to go to the actual story of the cave, the sleepers of the cave. So we're going to go through these four narratives, uh, probably in the course of the next eight sessions. So we're going to do two 20-minute sessions on each one of these narratives. Well, that would be a rough kind of guideline. We don't have to stick to that rigorously, of course. So we'll start with a reading um, of verses 83 to 99. This is the Dulqarnain, the possessor of the two horns. They will ask you, and I'm reading first from Marmaduke Pickthall, and then I'm going to occasionally look over to what Muhammad Assad says by way of translation of some of these rather interesting words. They will ask you of Dhul Qarnayn, say, I shall recite unto you a true account of him. Lo, we made him strong in the land and gave him unto everything a road. Now this road is the translation of sabab and what uh, Muhammad Asad said here is, Behold, we established him securely on earth and endowed him with the knowledge of the right means to achieve anything that he might set out to achieve. It's a very long-winded way of saying what sabab actually implies here. It's not just a road, but it's a means. Uh, sabab normally just means cause or reason, but here Assad is really trying to unpack what's implied in this one word, sabab. It's not just a road, but it's also endowed him with the knowledge of the right means to achieve anything that he might set out to achieve, using lots of square brackets. So, and... There could be another interpretation, could mm -hmm. be simply that Sabab is suggesting the idea of a cause, and what is the cause? Something that's leading Iskandar on, or Durkhanan on, as he's, because it's a fitna. Mm. It's a test. It's a test of his um, qualities as a great ruler, as the most powerful man on earth. And as such, opportunities are being given to him to show himself, mm. to prove himself. Mm. And he's traveling on um, and encountering what he's encountering along the road. 
And in this particular situation, he meets this tribe, and we shall see um, mm. what happens here. But it could mean not simply, well, I say simply, it's rather complicated and complex <laughs> um, explanation that um, Assad gives. But in the sense, we all have our experience of life according to what opens up before us. Mm -hmm. So the next verse goes on, 85, to say, and he followed a road. He followed this cause, and whereas Assad says, and so he chose the right means, square brackets, in whatever he did. So I think I prefer Pickthorn's rather more open-ended, just saying a road, and let's see where that road leads. It's a cause to something, whereas I think Assad is over-articulating it, mm. overthinking it perhaps. Mm. So I'll, I'll uh, carry on from here. And he followed a road, till when he reached the setting place of the sun, he found it setting in a muddy spring, and found a people thereabout. We said, O Dhulqarnain, either punish or show them kindness. He said, As for him who does wrong, we shall punish him, and then he will be brought back unto his Lord, who will punish him with an awful punishment. But as for him who believes and does right, good will be his reward, and we shall speak unto him a mild command. Then he followed a road, till when he reached the rising place of the sun, he found it rising on a people for whom we had appointed no shelter therefrom. So it was, and we knew all concerning him. Then he followed a road, till when he came between the two mountains, he found upon their hither side a folk that scarce could understand a saying. They said, O Dhulqarnain, lo, Gog and Magog are spoiling the land, so may we pay you tribute on condition that you set a barrier between us and them? I'm interested in the Arabic word here, referring to what Gog and Magog are actually doing in the land. Because I've read different translations of spoiling the, the land or wreaking corruption. It's on corruption. The it's, corruption. It's, it's facade, isn't it? Mm. And facade means corruption, corruption in the physical sense of decay? It or? can be both. It's no. corruption both uh, in uh, moral terms and in physical, mm. causing corruption mm. in the land. He said, that wherein my Lord has established me is better than your tribute. Do but help me with strength of men. I will set between you and them a bank. Give me chains of iron, or as Assad says, ingots, ingots of iron. Give me chains of iron till when he had leveled up the gap between the cliffs, he said, blow till when he had made it a fire, he said, bring me molten copper to pour thereon. And Gog and Magog were not able to surmount, nor could they pierce it. He said, this is a mercy from my Lord. But when the promise of my Lord comes to pass, he will crush it, for the promise of my Lord is true. And on that day, we shall let some of them surge against others, 
and the trumpet will be blown. Then we shall gather them together in one gathering. That's verse, end of verse 99. So, uh, I'm now going to hand it over to Guy and just remind our viewers that the reason we've asked Guy to talk about this amazing surah is that we're interested in the alchemical symbolism of what's going on in the whole surah, but we thought we'd begin with this because there's such obvious uh, symbols being employed. Um, but I think, Guy, you first want to talk a little bit about the eschatological aspect at the end of this narrative and then go to the alchemy, or would you like to start with the alchemical aspects and then finish with the eschatological? Um, I think I'd like to start with um, with Gog and Magog All right. mm. and the wall, because that's the, that's the main crux of it. The people in the muddy spring is slightly, it's slightly vague, but here we've got something very distinct going on. You've got people who are terrorized by Gog and Magog, and Gog and Magog crop up in the Hebrew Old Testament and elsewhere, but generally they represent giants. They are uncivilized, brutal, brutalizing, God-rejecting um, monsters, although anthropomorphized. Um, and in this situation, they are spreading corruption around the land, uh, which could suggest all, all manner of things. Essentially, they are de-civilizing. They are de-sacralizing um, mm -hmm. the land and their people. And of course, we can see modern analogies of this. Um, and when they ask Udul Khainan to do something about it, to, um, to try and save them, do they ask him directly to build the wall, or was that his idea? No, they ask him. Build say, the wall. Build the wall, because we can't protect ourselves against these people. Interesting. So he builds an iron wall. Um, and the way he builds the iron wall is slightly vague, but nevertheless we get the idea that it's constructed of lumps of iron. Iron that's already been formed into chains, or um, ingots which he is sort of building on top, of, sort of in a Lego-like fashion perhaps. But what's so interesting is that uh, they, he asked for copper to be brought and for molten copper to be poured all over this iron structure. And that reminds me of um, Empedocles, the so-called pre-Socratic uh, philosopher who um, is between Pythagoras and Plato. Is it, um, is it, he called the pseudo-Empedocles, is that the same? No, he's real Empedocles. Um, Pseudo-Empedocles really refers to a whole body of texts um, in the Islamic realm. Oh. Because um, Empedocles, as I think they call him um, Banidocles or Banicles in, in, in Islam, there are lots and lots of texts which are attributed to him. Mm -hmm but are written by um, later Muslim um, authors. What we have of Empedocles... Banicleidus, I think. Banicleidus. I think there are various names that are given to him. But he is more venerated um, in Islam than he is in the West. Really? Where he's a bit of a footnote. We just have fragments of two of his poems. Mm. Fairly good fragments. 
but those fragments have been um, reconstructed and reinterpreted very fruitfully by Peter Kingsley mm -hmm. in recent years. And so we're able to get a good picture of what he's saying. And he refers to this idea that life is really ruled, life down here is ruled by two great gods, um, the god Ares, who's Mars, the god of strife and war, on the one hand, and Aphrodite, Venus, the goddess of love, on the other hand. And they're, of course, associated alchemically with iron, Ares, Mars, and copper, mm. Venus, Aphrodite. Mm. Um, incidentally, Empedocles is considered the father of alchemy in a sense. Really? Yes, he is. And he's the first one to um, articulate the four elements fire, water, earth, and air. He's the first one in the West written down fire, water, earth, and air. You have previous um, philosophers, so called, um, who also mentioned the elements, but they mentioned either two or three people like Heraclitus, for example. But Empedocles, who insists that he is a sorcerer and a magician and a commander of the, of the weather, of the winds, and he's a plague curer, very colourful, um, extraordinary, extraordinary character, um, with his purple robes mm. and his golden diadem, preaching to the people. He was very well known in his time, very popular, um, and quite extraordinary character. But yes, he um, he has this idea of love and strife ruling the earth, and it goes in cycles. And when strife is in the ascendancy. Everything is terrorised and appalling, in a sense it's if Gog and Magog were ruling the roost. But on the other hand, when Venus has the complete ascendancy, everything dissolves into a sort of sentimental mush, mm. and there's no differentiation anymore. So the suggestion is that the perfect opportunity for, on an existential level, in order to come into oneself, is at a balancing point between strife and love, where we have differentiation on the, on the one hand, but we don't have um, oppression or too much oppression on the other hand, and yet we are still able to um, um, operate within a sphere of love mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing here is that he's calling for um, iron and copper to build this wall, and by keeping Gog and Magog out, he is creating an opportunity where the people can live in peace, where there's nevertheless the idea, the threat of chaos and strife on the one hand, because Gog and Magog are just behind the wall, and yet there is um, the opportunity for the, them to live in peace um, with the opportunity for love and the belief in God. The Iron Wall also makes me think of the Iron Curtain that descended at the end of the Second World War. Mm. And it's interesting now, particularly in the light of the appalling conflict in Ukraine, that since that wall, the Iron wall, uh, Curtain, was lifted, we immediately had problems in the Balkans, mm. where Gog and Magog were suddenly in the land in as much as there was civil war, there were terrible massacres, mm. there were these great struggles.
And now we see um, Russia's aggression towards Ukraine, yeah. which it believes was provoked by um, Nazism in the land. Yeah. And you can think of um, Nazism as a form of Gog and Magog as well. So there are signs that um, the wall is crumbling, in a sense. But also to go back to the alchemy of the actual wall and the construction of the wall, when you pour the, pouring the copper over the structure, the iron structure of the wall, fuses it together on the one hand, but also with the copper overall, it would oxidize slightly and go green. Mm. So it would become, as it were, merged into the landscape. It would become only semi-visible. Mm. And from a distance, it would be almost invisible if we're in a somewhat green and pleasant mm. land. Mm. So this so helps this us is, to understand. what happens when molten copper is put on top of iron and fuses it all together. It always goes green? Well, what happens is it fuses the iron mm. and it coats the iron because the iron have a low, having a lower melting point than the copper. Molten copper poured on blazing hot iron will fuse with the iron, but the surface will be copper. Mm. So it'll have a, um, a copper plating over the entire thing. And that copper will in normal circumstances oxidize, a bit like the copper domes of mm. mosques and churches. So it develops this green um, pattern. Ah, very interesting. Yeah. So that's, um, that's with regards to the wall. Um, remind me of other aspects of the story that you think might Alchemical interpretation. Well, you, you mentioned. Um, well, maybe. Do we have a break good, here? Good time to stop because we had a pause anyway, and that's. Um, Is that about that's 20 minutes? minutes? Oh, perfect. Yeah. So. Um, um, Excursus.